The following show is for entertainment purposes only. It references research about psychological issues in general, but is not to be taken as professional opinion or diagnosis about the individual in each case. Neither of the hosts have an established professional relationship with the individuals discussed in these stories. Everything discussed is based on their general professional knowledge, training, and experience. Welcome to Guilty, a true crime podcast. My name is Colin, and I'm going to be your host. Today, we're going to be joined by David, our licensed professional counselor, to discuss stalking. As this is a re-record of a previously recorded episode to fix audio issues, we're going to go ahead and skip housekeeping. But I will let you know a few details on how you can contact us. If you'd like to reach out, you can find us on Twitter at Guilty underscore podcast, on Facebook at Guilty Podcast, or by email at guiltypodcast at yahoo.com. With that said, let's get David on. All right, David, uh, we're going to start broad. We always do. Let's talk a little bit about stalking. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a great topic. Yeah, I don't mean stalking is awesome necessarily. Um, well, at all, not necessarily. There's no contingency there. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so stalking, you know, uh, so the, the typical definition for this, both in the U.S. and in and your favorite country of Canada, um, it's typically defined as the willful, malicious, and repeated following and harassing of another person that threatens his or her safety. So let's, um, uh, if you don't mind, yeah, let's break it down real quick. So it's willful, meaning mm-hmm. it's intentional, right? You mean to stalk this person. Yep. It's malicious. Malicious. And then what was the third one? Uh, repeated and repeating. I yeah. think that's inherent in the stalking. Right. So if somebody follows you out of the grocery store, they're not stalking you. Yeah. Okay. I just, I'm sorry. I wanted to clarify. Yeah. Um, at, at least as far as, you know, criminal harassment is concerned. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the first thing to say about stalking is that it always is accompanied with threats. Um, you know, and it, it's generally, you know, this can be done through letter writing. Um, or it can be done, you know, through the phone. You see a lot of stalking that comes about after divorces or failed relationships or issues in the workplace. And um, so there's some interesting, you know, research about threats. Um, one of the things we know is that threats are very common and most threats aren't followed through with. Um, so they also may increase, decrease, or have no relationship to subsequent violence at all. So there's two types of threats. Um, there's instrumental threats, and these are, you know, used to control and influence people, you know, so somebody might like threaten to kill their spouse if they leave a marriage or something like that, you know, and then there's expressive threats, 
And these are, you know, basically people do these to regulate their own emotions, you know? So somebody might say like, you know, I'm going to kill my boss. You know, I hate my boss. I'm going to kill my boss. And they're basically just trying to regulate their inner tension by, you know, saying something forceful. So, you know, expressive threats aren't really anything to worry about. Um, But instrumental threats, that's when people start to ask questions. So um, a couple of things about demographics of people who stalk, you know, the vast majority of people who stalk are males in their 40s. Generally, they have a high school education, they're average or above average as far as their intelligence. And then the other thing is that they're unemployed. And so that makes sense too, because you need to have time to stock somebody. Yeah, you got, yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, you couldn't do it if you had a full-time job. It's difficult following people around when you're working. Well, yeah. And to learn somebody's schedule, you know, to learn their patterns, you know, you need, you need time and space to figure all that out. Well, let me, let's back up a second. So you said they're in their forties. Yeah. Is there any, I guess there's not necessarily a reason for it, but is there any indication as to why... 40s tends to be the years where someone is more into stock. Let me back up. If 40s is their common age, what were they doing in their 20s and 30s? That's a good question. I imagine it's there's a broad amount of reasons, um, you know, and I don't have any specific uh, interpretation of that in front of me. But I would say, you know, think about your 40s. Once you reach your 40s, you know how your marriage went. Yeah. Um. Also, not well in that case. Yeah. Also, you think about like midlife crisis, you know, the sense of feeling like a purposelessness and a boredom. And generally, you also know how your career has gone. You know, there's very few people in their 40s who are like, how's the marriage? Not sure yet. How's the career? Mm, Waiting to see. TBD. Yeah, that's right. So so generally, when you're in your 40s, you kind of know, I think your, your degree of hope and satisfaction in your life are probably pretty well established. Yeah. You know, so that that would be my guess. And they also have a history of failed relationships. No surprise there. Yeah. You know, nobody who's stalking somebody else is like leaving their happily married, you know, life, leaving their spouse and be like, all right, bye, honey. Got to go do some stalking after work today. I'll we'll be back probably around eight or nine o'clock. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then usually there's a there's a prior criminal history, too. You know, so any uh, indication on what types of crimes um, oftentimes there's substance abuse associated with it. Interesting. Um, you know, so you have people that have a hard time regulating their emotions. Okay. Um, you know, and a lot of times substance abuse disorders, those are a good indication of somebody that just feels like totally out of control internally. And they're, you know, trying to play doctor with themselves. Um, or if they didn't feel that way in the first place, they do after, you know, dealing with dependency and withdrawal. Well, in the words of, uh, Adam Carolla, perfectly normal. Perfectly healthy. <laughs> so, uh, so those are, those are, that's some of your demographic information as far as like typology of stalker. Um, so there's a few different types. There's erotomanic, and that's a delusion. So these are people that have like a mental health issue, and in this case, you have people that you know think that somebody has privately or secretly communicated that they're in love with them. So it's almost like they're just reciprocating the infatuation, um, at least in their own mind. Of course, there's no infatuation in fact. But it's somebody that uh, believes, you know, that they're um, in a love relationship with a stranger or a high status or famous person, um, you know, and it occurs during psychosis. So it occurs um, in patients with people who suffer from schizophrenia or or delusional disorders or bipolar um, disorder. And, you know, this is accounts for 10% of stalkers. So 
um, you know, a pretty marginal percentage of, of people that actually stock. Is it a result of, you know, psychosis? Yeah. And these are people, they're stocking not necessarily because they're stalkers, but because something, there's another mental illness that's playing a key role. Yeah. The other thing that, that makes this this uh, specifically different from other types of stalking is that this typology is primarily female. So generally, you're dealing with males who are doing the stalking, not females. So um, yeah, you, you are, you're talking about somebody that is stalking as a uh, consequence of a pre-existing mental state in which they have, you know, beliefs uh, that are, you know, delusions. So the only time women are really stalking is when they have a serious mental illness. So this <laughs> well, is a guy thing. Well, it, it, it's not it's generally not a law. speaking. Yeah, it's not a law, but generally men are more dangerous than women. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's not surprising. Right. And if you think about like, you know, the biggest threat to women in our society is men. Yeah. <laughs> Overwhelmingly, you know, yeah. so that's why women are so much more intuitive than men is because they have to practice using and listening to their intuition on a daily basis. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things that I say to my classes is, uh, I say, here's an experience, you know, that every woman in this class has had and that most men have not had. I say, you know, women, have you ever had that experience when you're driving and you just kind of notice out of your peripheral vision that someone is speeding up or slowing down to try to look into the car and look at you, you know, and everybody kind of nervously giggles. And, um, and then I say, now men, the reason you've never had that experience is because you're that creepy guy, <laughs> you know, like every guy has had that thing with like, oh, who's that in that car? Right. And, and you don't know how creepy you're being and you don't know that you're creating a fear response, but women are in, are in, you know, safety, potentially, you know, uh, dangerous situations that are impacting their safety almost on a daily basis. Yeah. Well, hold and, on though. In, in all fairness, the only time I speed up to see anybody in a car is when they pissed me off and I just need a face to be angry at. <laughs> I just need to see a person that I can, I need, I need some target for my anger. Like right. I Colin, need. Colin's not into you. He's mad at you. Yeah. Thank you. Exactly. <laughs> I'm not trying to check you out, sweetheart. I'm mad that you cut me off. That's, it's totally different for me. Don't but flatter yourself. <laughs> that is interesting. Um, I, and that's something I had never considered you, because you're absolutely right. I have never had that experience before and I rarely have a, a fear mm. response. On did, a I ever tell you, did I ever tell you about the time that, um, you know, I guess I don't get too, too specific, but, you know, Colin and I used to work together in a different profession when we were both in, in school. And um, I was leaving work really late one night and I got in the elevator and the woman, there was a woman in the elevator, um, you know, my age. And she was obviously, you know, leaving her job and um, we were going down the elevator and, you know, I got in and she said, uh, what floor? And she'd already hit like, you know, the, the floor C or whatever. And I was like, oh, I'm actually going to C, right? And I could just sense her like feeling uneasy about it. Yeah. And uh, I wasn't in work clothes or anything like that. And she gets off. And when you get off the floor, you can either go right or left. So you can either go to the right side of the parking garage, or the left side. She goes right. And I'm like, oh, man, like my car's on the right. <laughs> like, damn it. <laughs> and I can just yeah. feel like the hair standing up on the back of her neck, right? Like I felt so awful. And then when we got out to the right side, you could see her car, but you couldn't see my car because my car was around the corner. Right? So she's looking at the situation and she sees that 
my car is nowhere to be found, right? Yeah. And I, I, I just say, hey, like, I just said it out loud. I said, hey, I just want you to know. And like, I clicked my car. Like, I clicked the, you know, the, to unlock it. And she just went, oh, thank you so much. Thank God. You know, and it really hit me in that moment, like, you know, laughs aside, like, that is the situation that I've never been in. I've never been in a situation where I'm leaving work and I'm thinking, is the person behind me going yeah. to assault me? And, you know, so that's a totally different, you know, men are, are certainly more violent um, and, and the biggest threat to, to women yeah. generally are. And in, in that, and when we worked in a downtown area and that I, I think with the number of people being as high as it is, you're going to have a number of weirdos being a little higher. And uh, there were a lot of stories uh, with our female coworkers about interactions that they had with men on the street and a lot more than just men hitting on them, but doing some very disgusting and disturbing things that I have never in my life had to deal with. So it's no surprise to me that um, they, they tend to be more of the ones who are, well, I don't even know what I'm trying to say. They're, they're not the stalkers. Women right. are not the stalkers. They are the ones that are being stalked probably in m most cases. Well, and, and even just think about most men understand that being direct with a woman about your level of interest is just a bad strategy to get her to be interested in you. You know, even if men don't understand that it might make a, a woman uncomfortable, um, they at least understand that it's not going to be a successful strategy. So it's like, you know, and I guess this is true of both men and women, but let's say you see somebody that you're interested in. Well, there's two strategies that you know are not going to work. The first strategy is not saying anything at all. And the second strategy is being too direct. Like, hey, I find you very attractive. Maybe we should go out on a date. We'll both have a little bit too much to drink and who knows what happens. None, <laughs> none, of, those, none of those things are going to work. Perfect line. So, so what you do is you occupy this middle ground of flirtatious behavior right? So you flirt a little bit. And when you flirt, you are basically inviting somebody to throw a ball back and forth with you. Yeah. And, and so you're, you're testing somebody's degree of interest by throwing this ball back and forth. You throw them the ball, do they throw it back? Okay, they did. Cool. Now you throw it back. Now they throw it back. And so you kind of occupy this middle space through this flirtatious behavior. It gives you an indication of whether you should move things forward and maybe ask them out to dinner or something like that. Yeah. So People who are, are stalkers oftentimes don't have the social skills to engage in this sort of behavior. There's one type, and we'll talk about them. Or they don't care, right? But, but this sort of thing is, is something that is you know, natural or at least understood by most men. But you know, there are a lot of people that women deal with that either they go with that over, they have to deal with that overly direct strategy, and that can be a really scary thing. And, and that's why you know, women, this is another situation women will be in. They'll be sitting in class um, or at work and they'll think somebody's looking at them like a guy and they'll go to look just to check, right? Like, All right, I'm just going to check if this person's looking <laughs> and they look and the person is looking and then inside they're like, damn it. <laughs> right? Like, oh God, like, why is that person staring at me? Yeah. And the guy is like, all right. All right. Yeah. <laughs> she, she's checking me she out. Back, right. And so, she, you know, then she like zones into her computer with like, you know, intention, like just reckless abandon. Like, I'm not going to look, I'm not going to look, I'm not going to look. But then yeah. eventually she's like, well, maybe, maybe that was coincidence. Like, okay, I'm just going to look one more time. <laughs> right. Oh, and man. she looks again and he's looking right at her. Yeah. Right. And she's like, oh my God, like, this is so creepy. And he's like, 
all right, I'm being affirmed. I'm being affirmed, right? So, uh, so you know, it's it's scary to be a woman um, and to deal with men who uh, don't fully understand how these games are played. And most people understand, you know, you need to throw the ball back and forth um, before you approach somebody. Um, and that is not something that is understood with a lot of uh, people that stock or at least is completely disregarded. Yeah. All right. So the, uh, what did you call them? Aerodynamic? Is that the first one? <laughs> They're fast and the wind resistance is low. Aerotomanic. Oh, aerotonamic. Oh, God. Aeroto? <laughs> I gotcha. So arrow, eros, love. Right? Oh, okay. So um, the second one is uh, love obsessional. That's the second typology. So that's individuals with a major mental. Uh, yeah, okay. So the first one is aerotomatic. So that's the delusion. The second one is love obsessional. That's, uh, you know, individuals who are fanatically in love with and pursuing a female stranger or casual acquaintance. Okay. And that represents about 30% of stalkers. You know, so that's the next group. And then the group after that is simple obsessional. And this is, you know, those individuals usually diagnosed with both substance dependency abuse or personality disorder, um, pursuing a previously like, you know, sexual relationship or, you know, a non-sexual relationship that started in the workplace. And that represents about like 50% of stalkers. So, yeah, that's the lion's share. And those are typically men, you know, and one of the things that you see with stalkers is they have these, um, two different features they attach really quickly and then they experience rejection really profoundly. So they come on too strong, then they freak people out and then, you know, women will set up boundaries and then, you know, they have this whole thing, you know, built up in their mind of how great they were supposed to be together and, you know, the love story that's being missed out on. And they've spent so much time, you know, fantasizing about this person that then they experience this profound rejection. Um, and then that rejection leads to humiliation. They feel humili humiliated and then they go to take revenge. No, oh, man, let me tell you something. Story of my life. I asked her, <laughs> I saw her across the bar, asked her to marry me. I had plans to, to take her away. All came crumbling down. Yeah, well, you're getting your help, the help you need now. Yep. So, and then the, um, the final typology is um, false victimization syndrome. And that's people who claim to be stalked and they're not. So, <laughs> so, so it's not really it. stalking then. No, that's just like another typology of like understanding what the data is, you know? Yeah. What percentage um, is that last one? 2%. Oh, okay. So it's all right. So it's attention seeking or, you know, alibi creating, or it could just be like, you know, there's some subset of people who think that being stalked means that like you're in high demand or something, you know? So they're like, well, I've been stalked before. Um, like it should somehow be flattering. Um, yeah. I feel like the people that have been stalked wouldn't really say it like that. No, 30% of people who have been stalked later develop PTSD. Wow. Well, I can imagine, though. I mean, how creepy is that? Like, yeah. being truly stalked. I mean, mm -hmm. you'd feel like your your life has been threatened almost daily. Well, you're, you're always looking around the corner. Yeah. You know, so it's like, and that's part of PTSD is that hypervigilance, you know, always thinking that there's a threat in the environment and always being... Um, overly oriented to the environment, right? So you have this startle reflex. You're always orienting yourself. Yeah. Um, you know, and if you are living that way for a long enough time, you know, you can imagine how that can become a real issue for people. You know, stalking victimizes people. Oh, absolutely. There's no doubt about that. That's, I'm glad I don't have to deal with it. Nobody's ever wanted to stalk me. In a way, I'm kind of <laughs> disappointed. I'm undesired. 
But at the same time, I'm thankful. I'm not yeah. desired. That's perfect. <laughs> you don't want that kind of attention. No, I, no, I definitely don't want that kind of attention. No, thank you. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's really, um, you know, this last category too, or this last typology that I'm talking about, you know, there's some subset of people that are in the population who um, really like the attention and I guess the better way of putting it is the nurturance of others. So, you know, if you think about something like a fictitious disorder, it used to be called Munchausen's, um, yeah. you know, that's when you pretend to have an illness. And the reason that you do that is because, you know, it's the response that you elicit, right? Yeah. People come around, you're in the ER, people want to make sure you're okay. You know, and there's also people who have um, fictitious disorder by proxy, which is that you pretend that your child is sick or you pretend that your grandparent is sick. And you do that with the purpose of eliciting nurturance and attention. And so it makes sense to me that you're going to find some percentage of people that are going to use I'm being stalked as a tool to get that same attention. Yeah. Hey, why did they change the name? What's wrong with Munchausen? Uh, I don't know. I'm not really sure what the what the rationale is for the name change. I, I don't know who Munchausen was. <laughs> it's probably yeah, the first person who studied it, you know, the first researcher. But we don't change the names of other <clears throat> things that we should change. You know, like a borderline personality disorder. The, that name came from thinking that that type of disorder was on the border between schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. And it has nothing oh. to do with that. It has absolutely nothing to do with either of those diagnoses. So I don't know why we don't update some, but we update others. I'm not really sure what the rationale is there. Yeah, because isn't um, antisocial personality new? Antisocial personality disorder, uh, I, don't, I don't actually know how new that is. Oh, okay. um, and they also like will slightly change the names of things here and there. Um, you know, so like people will tell me like, I have ADD and it's like, no, you have ADHD. And oh, is there only one now? Yeah. So there's no such thing as ADD anymore. That was, I think the DSM three and now we're at ADHD and then there's different typologies of that. Oh. But, um, but yeah, so, I mean, it doesn't really matter when somebody tells me they have ADD, I know what they're, what they're talking about, but you know, some of the language we, we update to be more precise and some of it, it seems like we just don't care. So yeah. I don't really know what the rationale is there. All right, so for stalkers, in terms of their social life, I'm guessing they don't have much of one. No, uh, a lot of these people are, are loners. I mean, imagine somebody who's prone to attach this way and then, you know, continually go through rejection. They're, they're pretty hard to be around. Yeah. The same is true if you're dealing with somebody that has a substance disorder or a personality disorder. You know, th these are people that struggle with relationships in general. You know, so whether the stalking itself is the reason why people don't want to be around or it's the precondition of who they are that leads people to not want to be around that then leads to their stalking um you know there's a there's a general social component here that's missing there's a, a lack of social intelligence a lack of just understanding how humans relate um and so yeah you're going to find a lot of people that spend a lot of time alone yeah that makes sense. And in terms of stalking, these are these are going to be romantic interests, right? Like you don't stalk somebody that you you want to be your friend. Um yeah, generally the romantic um you know, the simple obsessional typology is not always romantic. You know, people will stalk when they're angry. So, it could be stalking an old boss or whatever. But generally, you know, there's there's a romantic dimension to all of this. 
you know, and the other thing that, that happens too is with people who stalk who are angry, you know, the isolation continues to breed anger because you just sit there and you stew and you fascinate, you know, you just entertain this, this, uh, mental place where you're just going over and over and over again about how you've been victimized and mistreated, you know, and that's one of the key indicators of whether somebody's going to be violent or try to victimize somebody is, you know, how victimized themselves do they feel? Because most people, they don't attack you. They don't try to hurt you unless they feel that they themselves have been wronged. Yeah. You know, and so when you're dealing with and this is why I think it's we struggle to, to identify violent people in our relationships is because when we think of who the bad guys are, who the criminals are, we almost think of this cartoon version, right? We think of like this cloven hoof, smells like sulfur, demonic person with dead shark eyes. And we'll know what they look like when we see them and we'll avoid them. Yeah. But the truth is, is that people who do a lot of damage, the people who victimize, a lot of times they're a little they're they're just a little off but they don't seem to be bad people and it's only until you see them angry that you really start to understand that they're a threat and um you know one of the things that you'll also see is with people who victimize is that they're charmers right so they're like really good at persuading but generally you know you're not going to see their second strategy of becoming aggressive unless you tell them no and so it's when you tell somebody no, it's when you tell somebody, no, I'm not interested. It's when you tell somebody, no, I won't get dinner with you, that that's when the intimidation strategy comes out. And so if you're looking out for the devil, you're not going to see the real risk coming your way. Does that make sense? Yeah. It sounds to me like a lot of these people kind of live in a fantasy world. I mean, it seems like they spend a lot of time in their own head. Yeah. I think that's true. And I, th I think that people don't manage their fantasy lives very well, especially people like this, you know, and I think it's true of most people. You don't really think about what your imagination can do. You don't think about the power of your imagination. And, and you know, on the, on the positive side, if, if you have a healthy imagination, you can set goals and have a vision and, you know, it's all that stuff's very important for, you know, maintaining positive mental health and um, remaining optimistic about life. Well, it sounds like they're doing some of those. They're just wrong. Yeah, I think it depends on the typology. Yeah. But I think that, uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people that are very fantasy-based, and they spend a lot of time alone, and they don't have good relationships. And then they really struggle to, to differentiate the difference between what is happening in their fantasy life and what is happening or what it would be like if they actually followed through with that fantasy. So, so are, they, are, they, are these guys disconnected from reality then in a sense that they don't under, in their mind, cause and effect works different than it does in the real world? Yeah, you could think of it like they just are like horrible predictors. Yeah. And they're out there, they're on the fringe. You know, a lot of these people are, are, they're kind of, they're loners, you know, so they haven't had a lot of social success to begin with. You know, so if you have somebody that doesn't have a really good grip on how to relate and connect with other people and they have a lot of downtime, they're going to come up with plans and make predictions that they might think will be very successful. And in fact, you know, when reality syncs up with, with their intention, they realize that those two things couldn't be further apart. These guys are just 
not exposed to people at a younger age probably and have never learned how to be social in, I don't want to say the correct way, but I guess a socially acceptable way. Is that what it is? Could be. Um, there's really interesting research um, that they did with monkeys um, and the socialization of monkeys. And I don't remember exactly who the, it might be Harry Harlow who did the research, but basically they had three different groups of monkeys. And with one group of monkeys, they had um, a monkey and its mother, and it didn't have any exposure to any other peer monkeys, right? Any younger monkeys. And then they had one group that was monkeys that were only exposed to peers, right? And didn't have parents. And then you had one where it had parents and, um, but also was exposed to peers. And so it's no surprise that the third group, the one that had parents and was exposed to peer monkeys, um, did the best developmentally. But the surprise was that the group that only had peer monkeys did second best. And the group that did the worst was the monkeys that only had the mother, but didn't have any exposure to peers. Ah, uh, psycho. Well, so <laughs> Norman Bates. Perfect. <laughs> See, I knew it. I knew it. All right. So, so that's a I'm lesson to moms then, right? Can we, can we just throw that out there? Ma, you got to have your kids interacting with other people. If you lock them up in the house and it's only you, it's bad times later right. for other people. Don't right. create a monster. Right. Well, I know we've already isolated, uh, you know, Canadians and, and all sorts of people on this podcast, but I'm going to add another group of people that we're going to isolate. You know, if you think about folks that are homeschooled, you know, you can do that really well. Like you can have kids that are homeschooled, but you have, they have exposure to other kids and parents, you know, facilitate that and make sure that it happens. But everybody has had that experience at some point where you meet somebody who's been homeschooled and they just don't really seem to know how to connect. Um, they've been socialized in the parent environment and that creates issues in terms of understanding how to interact with their peers. And so I'm not saying that everybody who's a homeschooler has a negative emo you know, fascination and that becomes a stalker. Yeah. But I'm just saying that to say that there is a social phenomena there that takes place. And, you know, so if you have, it, it is possible that you can have the type of upbringing where you don't have exposure to peers, you only have exposure to, to parents. And then that creates difficulties for you socially later on. Yeah. So you're saying like, if you were homeschooled, you may not become a stalker, but you'll become some type of criminal. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm saying. Okay. <laughs> no, I, I see what you mean, though. So, I mean, we are a social animal. Um, yeah. So it's very important that we interact with people. And I think as technology advances, this is probably even more important in a lot of ways because we can do a lot of things now without interacting with anyone. Yeah, totally. Well, and I think about, too, that, um, you know, the component of being a social animal, you know, when you're in middle school, the reason middle school is so painful is because that's when the process and the pressures of socialization really start to kick in. You know, like you're having a harder time knowing what should I tell my parents versus what secrets should I keep with my friends. And a lot of people, you know, that's where the whole tattletale um, thing comes from is, you know, it, it should start to matter more what your friends think if you're on the right path. And kids are in a position where they have to navigate, well, but my whole life I'm supposed to, being good meant telling my mom and dad what's happening. Yeah. You know, and so there's this whole thing where kids have to navigate that. And then, you know, they, they experience a lot of pain with, you know, and we talk about like bullying and that sort of thing. And, you know, bullying can, I mean, bullying is next level right now in a way that it wasn't 
back when, you know, I was in middle school, you know, the amount of like, um, how social media is used to bully, you know, uh, people, you know, send up, you know, set up huge mass text chains to bully people and like, you know, spread rumors. And I mean, they just have tools now that yeah, are they have podcasts available, too. right. But, but part of being a good parent is understanding that the difference between your child being bullied and your child going through the painful process of socialization and your kids need to go through the painful process of socialization. They need to start caring more about their little adolescent society um, because that is what, that, that's the society that they're going to grow up in and that they're going to work in eventually. And that's the society in which they're going to marriage, marriage, marry. So I, I think that, um, you know, if people don't have the opportunity to be painfully socialized, then the short-term safety that parents provide for their children comes at a cost down the road. And so I'm not saying that all stalkers were homeschooled. Yeah, no, <laughs> but, I know. <laughs> but I am saying that, that many people who stalk, many, many outsiders in general, didn't gain the benefits of socialization. And sometimes parents are to blame for that. Now, the socialization needs to start extremely early or just in childhood? It just happens naturally, I think. Um, but I think when it really starts to matter is in that those middle school years. I mean, that's when kids start to, you know, late elementary school, middle school, that's when kids start to really struggle um, because they have these two worlds they have to navigate. They have to navigate the adolescent society and the adult society. And it's very difficult to know what to do in those cases. You know, it's, it's a little bit like, um, I don't know if you ever had this situation, but it's when you didn't want to hang out with somebody. So you went to your mom and you said, Hey, like so-and-so wants to know if I, if, if I can hang out, but will you just say no? And then I'll tell them that you said no. Yeah. You know, and then you go, Hey, sorry, I wish I could, but you know, my mom said no. Well, nobody ever wanted to hang out with me, so I never had that situation, but I <laughs> no, can see no. how somebody <laughs> who did have a lot of friends did have that situation. happen. <laughs> Probably the people that said no to me. I'm starting to understand you a lot more. Uh, well, we know that. <laughs> So, you know, there, there's that piece and, and then there's the piece. I remember I used to always say like, I think I, I think I hear my mom calling me, you know? Yeah, that's always where, a good one. You know, I, I would be like in the back, we used to play in these woods with the neighborhood kids. And like when they'd start to do something that I thought was bad, I'd be like, I think I hear my mom calling me. <laughs> and then I'd be like, they'd be like, I don't hear anything. I'd be like, no, I can hear it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because she's just, like, it's like a so bird. She's got a special call. Right. So you it's won't. like you're trying to navigate, you know, those two little societies, but eventually the the kids society if if you had to choose it's more important that your kid only have that than have the opportunity to be socialized in front of a parent at least if you want to follow that research on on monkeys but i think there's there's certainly some truth to that so how let's talk a little bit then about how someone who is let's talk about this how about someone who's a homosexual or might be into things that are not understood at that age would be able to adapt because if you're ostracized, let's say you are gay and at that age there are kids, I would, I would venture to say most kids don't understand sexuality yet. Um, you might be thought of as weird, different. You might be kicked out of social groups. How can someone who is ostracized for whatever reason adapt and still have a social life or still develop socially? That's a really good question. I think it's really difficult. I mean, if you live in a society where the broader society rejects who you are, then you just put in a situation where you have to hide who you are. 
you know, and so what most kids, you know, who are gay or get the sense that they are gay at a very young age, what they do is, um, if they're in an environment where it's not permitted, um, they just pretend that they aren't because they still want the, the relationships. They still want the interaction, you know, so, um, that obviously creates a lot of problems and a lot of pain and a lot of isolation. Um, a lot of, you know, they're not feeling truly known. The good news is that a lot of that is changing. Um, you know, that a lot of, uh, kids who come out as they're, they're more and more comfortable coming out as gay in high school. Which is good. Yeah, it's great. great. It's great. I mean, I remember when I was in high school, nobody came out. Oh yeah. I, I I couldn't imagine waiting just to get out of there and then they could do it when they were away from all these people. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I guess that's, I guess my thought process is, is you're going to have people that are different and, and not necessarily gay. There are artists who just see the world differently and they're treated differently. And, And middle school and high school is a very rough time because if you're not mainlined, if you're not mainstreamed, if you're not doing what's popular, you are, you have a higher likelihood, I think, of getting treated poorly, bullied, harassed. Um, and I'm just wondering how those people, because what we see are those people end up doing some of the, committing some of the crimes that we have. Yeah. Several of the people that have shot up schools recently were bullied. And I, I don't, I'm not going to blame it on the bullies at all because I think we all make our own decisions. But as the age gets lower and lower, it's harder and harder to attribute any type of responsibility. When you're 12 years old and you're bullied and you freak out and you kill someone, it's a little bit different than when you're 35. Yeah. I, I also think like in that situation, it's so important that the kids that you spot as having really low confidence that you either get them with a therapist or a mentor. Yeah. Um, because that's the biggest part of it too is there are a lot of people who, you know, they find their confidence in, in the midst of being bullied. In other words, the bully says A about me. And then I ask myself, is A true about me? And then I say, no, that's not true about me. B is true about me. And so there's this process of like being able to figure out what you internalize as a kid and what you don't internalize, right? It's it's figuring out, you know, how to really get to know who you are and how important that is. And so I think when you identify kids that don't have the ability to say, you know, okay, this person says A is true about me. A must be true about me. You, you have to you have to know your kids well enough to understand how much they're internalizing it. And then I've found the thing that, that helps the most is like, uh, you know, a mentor, you know, because a mentor then says, no, nah, B is true about you. And you think I'm cool, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So it's like, you know, they have another message that they're able to internalize. And if they think their mentor is cooler than the bully, then who do they believe? Right. So I think that it's, um, yeah, but you're right. A lot of these school shooters and, and those types are oftentimes people that are bullied. And I would say there's obviously more going on than just being bullied that leads to that behavior. Oh yeah, I'm sure. Because I think a lot of people are bullied. They don't do that. Yeah. But, but I do think that, um, you know, making, if people don't feel like they're a part of the tribe, sometimes they attack the tribe. Yeah. You know, sometimes they feel like you've rejected me. Well, well, now it's my turn. Yeah. You know, and you definitely see that sort of mentality in stalking as well. You know, you've rejected me. Well, we'll see about that. Yeah. And that would be the revenge, right? Yeah. And, and I'll say, I mean, it's, it's pretty rare. Homicide occurs in less than 2% of stalking cases. 
So most of these people are just obsessed with whoever their their interest is. Yeah, and 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 even things like you know when violence does occur in stalking, a weapon is used. Um, I think it's like less than one in three cases. You know, so it's like when there is violence, you know, it's it's more. Uh, domestic violence, like, you know, like slapping and that sort of thing. When there is homicide involved or when there's more direct violence and and a weapon is used, it's usually a handgun, a knife or a car. So, but that's pretty rare. Well, it's unfortunate too, because the, the situations we hear about uh, on your lifetime movies are always the ones that are murdered. And then people will say, well, how come uh, the cops didn't do anything or how come no one intervened? And and based on what we understand about those numbers, is that in most cases, stalking, I don't want to say it's not dangerous, because it is. Yeah. But the ch- the likelihood of you being physically harmed are low. Well, and that's why it's so important that people listen to their hunches and intuition. Yeah. Because... Well, if anybody followed me around, uh, my hunch and, and intuition would be, this guy's going to hurt me, period. Right. Well, so you're not going to be like, you're not going to be like, well, in most cases, nothing happens. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. No, I would never be that way. I would have a restraining order and I would call the cops every 10 minutes if I had to. But unfortunately, mm-hmm. I guess my point is, is the cases where stalking leads to murder are always publicized. And then everyone says, well, why wasn't anything done? But our yeah. understanding of the numbers is that, well, nothing is done because, well, one, we can't be a private police force and right. and constantly watch you. And the other person hasn't actually, in any, in most cases, done anything necessarily wrong. Um, yeah, and now, let me just be clear: I'm not defending these guys. I, I'm just pointing out um, illegally. Illegally, yeah. yeah. There's there's a difference between what we see on TV in terms of stalking and what the actual numbers say. And I think that's a very important distinction to make. Totally. The, the other thing that you brought up, which I think is interesting, is. Uh the topic of protection orders, um, you know, specialists like Gavin De Becker, um, who wrote the book, the gift of fear, he is not pro protection order in, in many cases. Um, and he says, basically you need to ask yourself that when you put a protection order up is the person that you're putting this protection order against going to view that as a challenge and is it going to anger them? In which case that might increase the odds that they're going to try to approach you. Yeah. Now, most people aren't like that, you know, and most people, um, you know, protection orders uh, work in more than 85% of the cases is the research. But it's about listening to yourself and knowing, okay, is this, gonna, is this protection order going to make this person stand down or is this going to provoke them? Yeah. And you have to listen to your gut in order to, act, to answer that question. You know, so it, it's, it really comes down to you take the facts as you, as you can. But if you, if you listen only to the facts, you know, you might be in that small percentage of people who get victimized. So it's almost better to prepare as though you're going to be that person Yeah, absolutely. than, than to say, well, odds are in my favor. It's better than a coin toss. Well, and the other thing about these orders, these protection orders, is you are affecting someone else's rights. And in some cases, you're removing their rights. So you have to balance that. I know a lot of people don't want to face that, and they feel like if they feel threatened, that's enough, but that's not. It, like you said, we have to take the facts as they are. And unfortunately, in a lot of these cases, the other person, maybe they're not actually 
stalking in the way that you perceive them to be because perception and the facts are very different because if you have a high anxiety level you mm -hmm. might interpret stalking when there isn't or you might be exaggerating it even if it were there now again i'm not defending them but i do think that with the protection orders you've got to be very careful because you are affecting someone else's life and potentially removing their entire liberty if they end up going to jail so we, do you know it's a tough what balance. Has to be, do you know what has to be in place in order for a judge to grant a protection order? Like, it, it depends on the state. I actually don't know specifically. I know that they're not too hard to get, generally speaking, but you do have to have some certain threat levels. But I believe that comes up um, or that comes down to the state statutes. Interesting. And the judge that you're before. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that makes you're, you make a good point, though. I mean, it's interesting to think about, you know, man, if you do have an anxiety level, high anxiety level, um, if you do have a tendency to over assess threat in the environment, then, you know, you might be over reading into the situation. Uh, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm more of a better safe than sorry sort of thing. Like if I had a family member, <laughs> like I try to think about it this way. If I had a family member who was like, dude, I think I'm being stalked. Right. I, I don't think I would be like, well, maybe you're overreacting. Yeah. Well, I would say but, go get a gun. Yeah. And kick it. No, I, I understand. <laughs> this is one of those things. And I'm pretty sure we talked about it in crim law, but it's it's a very difficult balance because on the one hand, you don't want to just give everyone any type of restraining order. Right. You know, because they feel because they don't like somebody or they right. feel like somebody is harassing them. On the other hand, you want to be able to give it when there truly is a threat and you want the police to respond. There was a case in Colorado where a woman, I want to say she was murdered and her kids were murdered in their front yard. And she had told the police several times that he was going to do something. And you hear about these cases, I mean, all the time. And yeah. people always look at the cops and they look at the courts and they say, why didn't you guys do anything? And when you look at the facts, though, it's like, well, they were still married. She never filed for divorce. Not in this specific case, but a lot of times you start looking at certain facts and you're like, well, what could we do? I mean, it, th there just wasn't enough here for us to actually step in and do anything. And sometimes there is. Sometimes there's a lot that's involved and they just don't do anything anyway. But mm -hmm. I guess overall, it, it's a tough situation. It, it's hard to handle stalking in any of those four categories, I think, yeah. uh, for the law to actually legislate and enforce laws that are on the books related to stalking because of how fluid each situation is. And with cyber stalking now, it makes it even more difficult because yeah. where do we draw the line online? If somebody's creating fake profiles, watching your Facebook feed, watching you on Twitter, where where do we draw the line on internet, emails, phone calls, text messages? It it gets a little more slippery even there. Totally. Yeah. So as far as McDaniel goes, the only indication that he had stalked was a video that he made the night before a murder. There was nothing else from any of his friends, any of her friends, the school or the police that suggested he stalked her beforehand. And my guess is that video was only directly related to the crime. I mean, he was trying to get an idea of the layout, see if anybody's in there. I really don't know that we can classify this guy in any of these categories personally. So, but I do think it's interesting to note 
how much of an outsider he was most of his life and the fantasy-based games that he played, he tended to really live in a fantasy world. And maybe she became a big part of that fantasy world and then he acted out and unfortunately resulted in her death. And she obviously wasn't over-exaggerating and wasn't too anxious because she thought she was safe. And um, this is one of those cases where you do wish somebody was able to step in, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, didn't she also, I thought this was interesting. Didn't she also, like, um, her parents had said, like, hey, what's up with this guy? And she reassured him and said, like, ah, he's he's harmless. Yeah. Yeah. They they noticed. Well, that's, I think that's fascinating because you always find that, you know, you always find family members saying, hey, what's going on here? You yeah. know, and... My, my rule of thumb is if something needs reassuring, um, then it needs examination. You know, if people who care about you in your life are asking you to reassure them about somebody, um, maybe you shouldn't. Yeah. And that's, that's, I think where some of that intuition and all that other stuff comes into play. You know, that if, if, if your family gut is saying, man, I don't know, we talk and this guy kind of weirds us out. Yeah. You know, ask yourself, did your gut do the same thing in the first place too? And, and do you, are you only now not worried because you've reasoned yourself out of something that you knew to be true in the first place? Yeah. And maybe she's just too young. She hasn't had enough experience in the world. Whereas her parents have had experience in the world. They've dealt with shady people, maybe not murderers, but maybe they've dealt with shady people so they can kind of get some of the tells like they start to know when something's off and that's probably part of becoming socially intelligent. I think so. I also think it's a matter of making a choice not to feel bad about what you notice and what you feel. And I think a lot of times we do. And so somebody might seem off and then we're a little worried and concerned, but then we go, well, I don't want to judge the person. Yeah. You know, I don't want to be mean. Like everybody's mean to this guy. I don't want to be mean to him. Yeah. And, And instead of asking like, well, if that wasn't the take that I that I walked away with in the situation, maybe it's the case that, you know, I'm actually receiving a a signal of concern from my brain, and maybe I shouldn't moralize it. You know, maybe I shouldn't say is that right or wrong. Maybe I should just say, my brain's telling me something is off here. I'm going to listen to that. I'm going to adjust, yeah. and I'm not going to worry about you know whether I'm being mean. You know, there's no such thing as being mean when you're worried about your safety. Yeah. Well, and you've already said that your life lesson for everybody is empathy is bad. <laughs> don't empathize because it gets you killed. In yeah. some cases you die. Sometimes you get robbed. But don't empathize. Don't do that. I think it's the case for, for being rationally empathic. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. And I think that you do. You, you've got to balance the, the emotion and um, I guess reason. Yeah, the ethical consideration. Yeah. And that, that works in, in reverse too. And by the way, the, a lot of these observations are laid out in a really great book uh, called Against Empathy by Paul Bloom. He's a researcher at Yale. Um, but the other side is true too. Sometimes our ethical intuitions don't become activated when they should. Right? So it's like, you know, um, Adam Smith, you know, wrote the book, The Wealth of Nations. He's kind of like the first free market economist. And he used to give this um, example. He said, suppose, you know, in a faraway country, there was a tsunami and millions of people were killed. He said, well, for the first few days, you would lament, 
you would say, oh, things are so unfair. Things are so awful. The world is harsh. And, and you might even give to charity. You might even give. But if three weeks later you accidentally chopped one of your fingers off, you would spend more emotion and hardship over the fact that you now had nine fingers than you did over the millions of people who were killed. Yeah. And so, you know, we're, we're naturally self-enclosed, right? And so if we allow our empathic responses to guide our behavior, sometimes when we need to respond and have sustained response, right? In the cases of natural disasters and things like that, empathy just doesn't equip us to do that. And, and that's because empathy evolved, you know, human beings evolved in smaller groups. Yeah. So, you know, we're, we are equipped to extend empathy to a small number of people, but now we're in a world where, you know, we're in touch with all of the suffering that's going on everywhere. And eventually your empathy just says, I can't extend that far. Yeah. And so if you allow that emotional response to impact how you orient yourself towards suffering around the world, you know, you're going to be limited in your ability to be rightfully compassionate. Yeah. All right. I think that's it. So I think that in terms of McDaniel, there's not much we can say. Um, I think that that is, you know, I don't think personally, based on what I've uh, researched, that he really falls in any stalking category. I think that it was more of a fantasy based thing that he tried to live out and it didn't work out in his favor, obviously. And I don't think it turned out the way that he thought it would. And he's now where he needs to be. And since it's the United States, he's going to stay there. <laughs> he's not going anywhere. This ain't Canada, McDaniel. <laughs> you don't roll out after 10 or 15 years. You don't just get to hang out and watch TV and play cards. Well, you probably get to do that, but that's all you get to do. Yeah, and you it's in Georgia, it. so God help you. <laughs> I don't think Georgia, if I had to pick a state to be in prison, it wouldn't be Georgia. I think that was a good place to end. So thank you for tuning in. Thank you for sharing the show with your friends, sharing on social media, and thank you for leaving an iTunes review. If you want to reach out, you can find us on Twitter at guilty underscore podcast. You can find us on Facebook at guilty podcast, and you can email us at guiltypodcast at yahoo.com. So this is Colin for David saying, talk to your kids. <laughs>